You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's open in prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning for bringing us together so that we might fellowship around your word, whether it be to, in Sunday school or the, the preached word this after, this, later on this morning. We thank you for the music, for all those who prepared. And Lord, we just ask that you would bring each of us here safely, bring us back home safely on the roads. We ask, Father, that your spirit would, would illuminate your word today, that we might step one step further in our sanctification and being obedient to you and loving you. And we'll thank you for all that you're going to do this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, or 2nd. I live in 1 Corinthians. We were in it for like 300 years, so that's why, you know. 2 Corinthians, chapter 6. And we're going to read the whole chapter. There's an outside chance we'll finish the book today. So it will be good to have the chapter context. 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, page 1495. In mine. <laughs> and working together with him, Paul says, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying Yet behold, we live as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony hath Christ has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from the midst, their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So a couple weeks ago, when we finished up, we, we finished in um, this chapter in, on verse 7, in the word of power, Paul is cataloging those things that underscore what his ministry was like that he started in verse 4. He said, but yet... But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God and much endurance. And then he has a list. And he's gone through this entire list all the way down to verse 7 where we finish, which was in the word of truth. 
in the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. And we talked about the fact that the word of truth is, of course, the scripture and the gospel. It's the power of God. In Romans, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, And then the weapons of righteousness have been variously described, and we looked at the fact that uh, God describes them in uh, 2 Corinthians, in, in this book, in chapter 10, which we will get to later on, and then in Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the weapons of righteousness that God, the, the, the armor of God. And so these weapons, which are found in Scripture, the righteousness of Christ Himself, which is imputed to us at salvation, is an understanding of and an ability to share accurately the gospel as presented in the Scriptures, the faith that God gives to His children that provides us with the power to believe in Him for everything He has promised, which is salvation itself, and bracketing these descriptions, again, he says, the sufficient Word of God. So Paul brackets all those descriptions with the Word of Truth, the Word of God. So moving to verse 8, which would be the next verse. <laughs> I did take common core, didn't take common core math, but I can still count. 2 Corinthians 6, 8. He's going to continue his list of things that, that he has underscoring that he commended himself not doing any disservice to the ministry of of bringing the gospel to the world, especially to the Corinthians in this particular book. He says, By glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true. Paul now proceeds through a series of paradoxes. Paradise. Whatever the plural is there. That accompany the Christian life. These are attachments to anyone who spends their life studying and promulgating the word of God. The first is glory and dishonor. He says, by glory and dishonor. He is loved by some and hated by others. That's what you're going to find. There's not going to be a lot of gray area in the way people feel towards Bible-believing Christians who are not ashamed of the gospel. They will generally either be loved or hated, liked or disliked. And that's a good thing because you kind of know where you stand. You kind of know where you stand. The servant of God who faithfully lives the gospel lives out the gospel, there's very little in between. It's black or white. Like I said, people either hate or love. Then he says, come, good reports, evil reports and good reports. There are those who will find wrong in everything he does, and there are those who will see the heart of the man and understand his drive and desire to bring the gospel and good into the lives of others. There are those those who will tell the truth about him and those who will faithfully, if you will, tell lies about him. We have people in our lives who no matter what we do, we did the wrong thing. My dad used to say, that guy wouldn't be pleased if you hung him with a new rope. There's nothing you can do to please him. And so for that person, just stay true to the gospel. Let the gospel convict. Let your life convict. And then there are people, and we all have these blessed people in our lives, who will see us do something wrong and say, I'll bet they had a good intention there. I'm going to find out what happened and maybe help them along. Because they know the heart. They know your heart. They know you desire to please the Lord. They know you love the Lord. They know you want to do the right thing. And even when you do the wrong thing, they're your supporters that come alongside and help you overcome the mistakes. And I actually have a couple of these people in my life. I think I've told you about one. I asked her years and years ago if she wouldn't mind providing me with a list of things that she thought I needed to change in the page. It was three pages. In, in about number four font, single-spaced. 
she used the whole page, you know. <laughs> and what was really hard to take was I, as I read through them, I thought, yeah, most of these are right. <laughs> so, but that particular person has always been a good, a good sounding board for me. And Paul, I'm sure, had those, especially the people that traveled with him. They would give a good report. And then he says, a deceiver or a truth teller, regarded as deceivers and yet true. Some will regard him as a liar, and others recognize the truth of what he preaches. Paul was even accused of being a false apostle. In 1 Corinthians 9.2, he reminds his listeners there. He said, if to others I am not an apostle, I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. There are going to be people who, when you, tell, when you give them the gospel, they're going to continue, consider you a deceiver. And that can come in many ways. Uh, for the most part, in today, it comes in just about every way imaginable. <laughs> there are very, there are varied and sundry ways of thinking you're a liar because of the gospel. It starts with Genesis. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth, don't we? You're, that's where it starts. It starts there. Well, you're just deceived if you believe that. And there are those in the church itself who, who unfortunately have bought into the lie of evolution, which um, is, is what undergirds, in many ways, the philosophy of life that completely rejects God and has resulted in so many horrifying things, abortion and racism and all, and, and destroying one another. Those have emanated from this, misunder this belief that God is not in charge. God didn't start this because it's the beginning of rejecting God in some way, shape, or form. He says, in the beginning, God spoke. He said that. Now, either he told the truth, or it's a lie. And that's why Paul says, as deceivers, and yet true. What Paul preaches is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, undergirded by the Old Testament. And he was regarded as a liar 20 centuries ago. Don't think we'll escape from it. We will be regarded as deceivers to those who are not to those who are perishing. But to those who are seeking life, we will be regarded as true. The scripture is true. Never, ever forsake that in your minds. Any comments about verse 8? Questions? Yes, Brian. Will suffer persecution. And, and from, a, from a political and constitutional perspective, we can attack that, but we need to expect this. Um, Brian was just talking about 1 Corinthians 3.12 that says, those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He didn't. The Holy Spirit knew what word to put there. He didn't say may, might. He said will. And that's a term of law, which means it's going to happen. And this couple that refused to print a homosexual I'm assuming it must have had homosexual overtones. It's okay. They refused, and now they're in front of their state's Supreme Court, or state, their state's courts, anyway. Um, that's being regarded as deceivers. But they're, they're truthful. They will not print a lie. And so they come in front of the court of man. But when they come before the court of God, the Bema seat, it'll be a reward. But it's hard. It's hard. As one man said, eh, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. So. It is, it is interesting. You know about that. 
Right. Where are the actions? Where's the proclaiming the gospel? Where's the outward actions that we're supposed to be doing? That we're getting closer to you. If we've already retreated to the wine, and now it's the wine's moving back. Right. We need to push that forward. The gospel. We need to be wisely taking the fight forward. You're right. And who knows, maybe these folks that are going in front of the court, this is an opportunity for them no, to witness. It'll be great, be great. This is a great opportunity, whatever state it is, for them to, to uh, witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in a court of law. Any other comments? Verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. As unknown, yet well-known, as dying, yet behold, we live, as punished, yet not put to death. So in his early life, in his early adulthood, Paul was well-known in Jewish circles and largely unknown in other, to, in other circles other than as a danger in the Christian world. If someone said, Saul of Tarsus, you would go back in your house and shut the door and pray that the Lord didn't allow him to come there. Because <laughs> he was going to drag you into the street with letters from the Sanhedrin to possibly have you thrown in prison or put to death. That's the Paul that the early... In the early years, he was unknown, but unknown in, in he was well known in Jewish circles, but only known in the Christian world as a killer, and unknown probably in the larger in the larger Roman Empire. But later, he became more unknown to the elites and the masses, but well known to those in the church. The constant threat of death, Paul says, in, his, in this second phrase, as dying yet behold we live. The constant threat of death hung over Paul every day. He faced death threats from Jews, from the Roman controllers. They began to hate him, and indeed, they were finally responsible for his death under Nero. And yet, he lived on. It says, as dying, yet behold, we live. He lived on, much to the chagrin of his detractors, but to the delight of those who loved him, and because of the word that he brought to them. And then Paul says he was punished often, punished yet not put to death, and often as he details later in this chapter, but at times he was even left for dead, but he lived on to bring God's word to the infant church and to the world at large. And we have his epistles published today. As dying, yet, we beho yet behold we live, and as punished, yet not put to death. The odds of him surviving and bringing the gospel and writing these epistles were pretty slim in his day because he was, as Peter said, he was pushing the envelope every day, all day long, in, in, in numerous provinces throughout the Roman Empire, which was a godless empire, and who put Christians to death, act, indeed used them to light their parties by setting them on fire with pit, covered with pitch. So he said, as dying, as punished, but yet not put to death. Um, that hasn't happened to most of us in this country today. Um, but the day may be coming. It may be coming. Not to startle, but it may be coming. It's funny, you don't really know how serious you are about something until you've got skin in the game. And so, may the Lord, may the Lord cause us to be faithful. Verse 9, any questions or comments about verse 9? Verse 10, 
as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. This is not a verse to support your best life now. (laughs) Because look at the whole verse. Do Christians know something of sorrow? Do you know something of sorrow? But you have a way of dealing with that sorrow that the world does not have. You have the sovereign God of the universe behind you, if you will, before you, and on each side. Not that he is reduced to the, to the work that, I'm, that sounds like a, a bellboy. That's not what I'm talking about. But he has decided to be your father, and he will bring you through it. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There was great sorrow in Paul's life, and yet plenty of rejoicing. This is true in the lives of every believer. We have a joy that the world cannot know, for we know that even the sorrows that our lives bring have a purpose for the work that God is doing in our lives. And sometimes that's hard to, to put into perspective when, when it seems like every time you get up, somebody jerks the rug out from under your feet and you land on your head. Now, it's good for me to land on my head. Nothing really happens. But for most of us, we, it, it hurts. We land, it hurts. We land, it hurts. But we have, we have the, the sure knowledge in, in Romans 8 that God is working everything, not most things, not a few things, everything, all things, to good for those who are called according to his purpose. We're called according to his purpose. He's working it for good. <clears throat> and we also know that the sovereign God of the universe does not take our struggles lightly. He is not excited about us having difficulties. It's, it's an opportunity for him to shine through in our lives, but it does not bless God for us to be harmed. It blesses him when we respond in obedience and love and his son is magnified. That's what blesses God. And so even though Paul struggled with the sorrow that the world brought, he also had great rejoicing. Paul remarked often that he was poor in this world's goods. Paul did not have a Mercedes-Benz chariot. He didn't live in a 56-room mansion. Now, for those who are, are, have been accorded that, there's nothing wrong with that. If they're using that for the Lord, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with being poor. The point is... Paul says, I have been poor. As poor, yet making many rich. Now, how did he make them rich? In the word. He didn't send them a request for $5 that he would then bless and it would become 5000 in their lives. He blessed them with the word of God. There is no greater blessing in those, for those of us who have need. <laughs> The riches he had, the gospel, a relationship with the living living God were to be preferred and delighted in. And so though poor in material goods, he was still able to, through the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, make many immeasurably rich. The difference between an eternity in, in hell and an eternity with God. You can't measure that. It's that little eight that lays on its side, the infinity symbol. It's that incredibly different. So you may not have much here, but make the most of what you have in using it for the Lord. You may have a lot here. Praise God. Make the most of it in doing what you can, what God has called you to do for Him. So in these nine paradoxes, Paul encapsulates a great deal of the Christian experience. It is a life of rich texture, wonderful experiences, great difficulty, sorrow, and great blessing at the hands of the Father who owes us nothing 
but gives us everything. Owes us nothing. Actually, he does owe us something. He owes us an eternity in hell. That's what he owes us. But he gives us eternity with him. It's still, that is a paradox in itself. Verse 10. Any questions or comments about verse 10? Verse 11. Now, Paul's going to open up again. He, he just went through a list of the reasons why he has given no cause for offense in the ministry, which we can take as, if you will, a little refrigerator checklist. Oh, here's some things we can, we can, we can think about. We can ask God to strengthen us in, to make us more effective in. But he just gone through that list. Now he's going to open up some more of his heart to the Corinthians. He says, he says our mouth, speaking of himself, and his, his traveling companions and those who are also giving the gospel. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing about, about relationships, but the only thing to have a really, truly good relationship is to be open in your relationship. Now, I'm talking about your heart being open to the person that you're loving and you're caring for. And that also opens you up to great hurt, doesn't it? It can. But remember this, God can use that as well. God can use that as well. Um, I think about my relationship with my wife. It's been a, you know, for the, we've been married 42 years now. <laughs> she needs a purple heart and a combat medal and a bronze star and a congressional medal of honor um, and other medals that they haven't thought of yet. But it's been, a, it's been an interesting trip, um, and it's been a wonderful trip. Uh, but our hearts had to be opened wide to one another. We had to be able to, to not only confide, we had to be able to have the freedom to hurt one another as well as to bless one another. And so that's what Paul is saying here. He said, we opened up wide to you. It, in an uncharacteristic outburst, Paul speaks directly to the church at Corinth. The only other epistle in which he does this is when he calls out the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, where he says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This gospel you're hearing or preaching is not at the gospel it's another gospel and that, that wasn't an exact translation but this is a man who has opened himself up completely to the people at Corinth when he says his heart is opened wide it is a reflection of the fact that he spoke openly and freely to them about anything and everything and I believe when they asked him questions about himself he was forthcoming they knew all about his past life they knew all about how he had treated and tried to kill Christians there was no secrets and yet he had opened his heart wide to them and he's going to ask them to do something they knew him well because of his own choice to tell them everything about himself. Now, be circumspect. That's, you understand what I'm saying here. He told them the things that were necessary to say. I, I see stuff on Facebook and I go, why did you put that on there? Is there mind bleach somewhere that I can, you know, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't need to be said. <laughs> social, I'm trying to think of a, it's not social, it's almost anti-social media. But those things that need to be said, be open about them. Be, be able to share them. His heart was open wide. <laughs> when someone knows a great deal about you, they hold in their hands a great trust, for they can be the most destructive to you because of that knowledge. Paul knew this. Paul had spoken honestly and forthrightly about God and the gospel, and he had clearly taught the Corinthians about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he had voluntarily acknowledged to the Corinthians about his great love for them. This makes one very vulnerable, and he was trusting the Corinthians not to misuse that knowledge. When someone knows a great deal about us, they can misuse the knowledge in a manner that brings great harm to lives. Some in the Corinthian church were, in fact, doing this. 
And uh, he talks about it earlier in 1 Corinthians, and he'll talk about it more later in this book. So we'll do verse 12, and then I'll see if there's anything you have to add. Paul had done nothing. He says, you are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Paul had done nothing to restrain or restrict the Corinthians in their response to him. They had chosen themselves to believe untruths and be reserved towards Paul, some of them. Restrain means to be made narrow, restricted, or hindered. And Paul had done none of these things. It's possible that in some of the, uh, the cases when he was required by scriptural truth to call the Corinthians out for their bad behavior, that they probably took offense. When someone calls you out for your bad behavior, the first human response isn't to go, I'm so glad you showed that to me. I have been wondering if that was a bad thing to do. Now I know. I can change for the better. No, usually we, we react. And that's often when the relationship has the opportunity to deepen and become even more of a blessing. If a person is willing to accept the fact that they do not levitate to put their pants on. They put their pants on one leg at a time like everybody else. And so when someone comes to us with an issue, hear it out, even though it hurts. It is not good to take offense when someone has lovingly and biblically chastised you or chastised one of us. This may have been some of the cause of the restrained atmosphere that Paul speaks of here. And no one likes to be corrected, but it is far better to be corrected than to live on in sin, possibly even unknowingly. Now, that means that those of us who are going to be doing the correcting, pray about it, think about it. If it's not a life-threatening thing, take your time, be careful. Get counsel if necessary. Careful counsel where you don't necessarily really reveal identities. Maybe you're misunderstanding the situation, but there were some that Paul had corrected, and they, we'll talk about this later on, they had overreacted. Remember that he, he, he talked about the man who was living in sin with his father's wife? He was married to his mother, essentially, and he, he said, I've already judged it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Well, later on in 2 Corinthians, he said, okay, okay, it's enough. He's repentant, drawing back in, lest there be so much sorrow for him. Um, so be obedient to God's word, but stay within the pendulum of balance that God's word can give. So now, and then verse 13, and then we'll talk about it if you have any questions or comments. Paul was not too proud. He says, now in like exchange, I speak as to children, Open wide to us also. Open your hearts up to us as well. Paul was not too proud to show his hurt and his heart here. He was not speaking to children as though they were stupid or foolish or unlearned. He was speaking to children in this simile as to his own spiritual children, those whom he had begotten in Christ. They were spiritual children whom he loved, he cared for, he delighted in, he worried about, he prayed for, he concerned himself with. And as he says, in an exact exchange, I'm asking you to return the love that I have given you. The to us is provided. It's not in the text. Paul was requesting the Corinthians to show love to him. And the translators appear to assume that this was meant for all of those who administered in Corinth. And I think that is a good, a good assumption. Open your hearts wide to us as well. And often we'll speak in the third person. Paul does that in the scripture. Uh, as, as though in the narrative sense. But it's, it's, a command. it's not a command, it's a request. I speak as to children. Would you open your hearts wide to us as well? And so that's how relationships are. The heart needs to be open both directions. Paul's heart was open to the Corinthians. 
He was asking them to open up to him. And basically, that's some, one of the ways of saying, you know me. You know some of these things that I've been accused of, that I wouldn't do those. And sometimes that's what it takes. It takes a, a bearing of someone's soul for word to start going through a body of believers to work out some of the differences that are going on in a strong body of believers. I can imagine that happening here because this is a strong body where if there were misunderstandings, people would work it out. They'd figure it out because they love one another. He loved this church. Many of them loved him. He said, I've been open and vulnerable to you. Do the same for us. Any questions, comments? Do not. Now he's going to, okay. Now it's, <laughs> as I was reading this, it's like, this is jarring. Okay, we need to have open, healthy, biblical relationships. Now, by the way, do not be bound together with unbelievers. I don't think that's what he looked like, but that's kind of how I read it when I read this. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So Paul's instructions, sometimes with the Corinthians, were often met with disobedience. Later, however, I think in some cases, or maybe even at the beginning, when Paul, some of them, when he would require them to do something, they would realize the accuracy and the truth of Paul's encouragements, and they would not only obey, but they would take his instructions to the extreme. This is the reason he had to come back and tell the Corinthians to receive back into fellowship that repentant sinner we talk, I talked about earlier, that they had put out of the church per his instructions in 1 Corinthians. They were taking the punishment to an extreme. Paul, let me just quickly, I don't have my bound together. They were taking his instructions to extreme he never intended. It's logical to, to assume that one of the reasons that some Corinthian hearts were not open to Paul as detailed in the previous three verses was because some in Corinth were engaged in practices that they knew Scripture would disapprove of and therefore Paul would disapprove of. One of those bad actions was probably the point of this verse. Some Corinthians were involved in ways they shouldn't be intentionally with unbelievers. We're going to talk about that. Bound together means, um, it, it's the idea in, um, in Leviticus and, and in Deuteronomy, and I'm getting ahead of myself. So let me just read this. Paul also made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that he was not commanding believers to divorce unbelievers. He said, if, if you'd be pleased to stay together, stay together. Don't change that relationship. What he is telling them is that saved people, believers, should not intentionally become intimately involved with unbelievers. That's what that means. Don't intentionally become... Now, intimate can be both on a, a relational or in a business uh, relationship. This would be in marriage, business, or any other endeavor in which the priorities of the two people involved could not be the same. If you are going to be involved with someone you want to make sure that their priorities are the same as yours and that your priorities are the same as theirs. I think we get married today much more quickly than we buy a used car. We check carfax.com and we ask questions and we look underneath and we open the hood and we drive it. And I see people who've been together for three weeks. They met on Facebook and they're married. I know some who are now unmarried because it was a mistake. That's why... Some of the best relationships in that case, and I'm not saying this has to be the only way, but some of the better ones are in, in a body of believers where the people were spent years together. They got to know each other. They knew each other's families. 
they, they were able to make those kinds of decisions in a much more effective manner. But this does not mean a believer cannot buy products from an unbeliever. It does not mean a believer must hire a Christian plumber at 2 o'clock in the morning when the toilet exploded. <laughs> it does mean in situations where the two people will be making decisions about how to live, how to conduct business, or any other such important decision, those two people should be like-minded. They should be believers. And they should actually be, if you will, I know this is going to sound, I don't know how, I was trying to figure out a way to say this, but the same kind of believers. <laughs> you, you, you follow what I'm saying here? You know, <laughs> let's, let's remove as much argument as we possibly can before the relationship. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, oh, I could get into a political discussion, but I won't. <laughs> okay. Much of what we do in life will knit us together with others in, in incredibly wonderful ways. Let's make sure our knitting is only done with those who genuinely, soundly saved. Does this mean that a reformed, reformed evangelical cannot have fellowship with a saved, charismatic evangelical? No, it does not. But it's unlikely that they could work together on anything meaningful regarding the propagation of the gospel. So... Lest we become judgmental and be like the Baptist, you've heard the joke where, it's, uh, please, this poor theology, it's just a joke. We have to give these disclaimers now. But St. Peter's taking this new entrant into heaven past all these rooms, and there's some people with their hands in the air, oh, that's the charismatics, and there's some people, oh, that's the, pres- the you know, that are staidly listening and nodding, that's the Presbyterians, and then there's this room where there's a group of people that are just sitting there and not saying anything, and Peter says, as we walk by, you need to be quiet, okay, so they well, who are those? He said, well, ask the Baptists, and they think they're the only ones here. When I, back in those days when I was going to Baptist churches, that was the joke we told. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Don't be the person that thinks the only person that can be al- aligned with you has to, has to I'll give them a list, and they put it on the refrigerator, and they memorize it, and then we can be together. No, that's not how relationships work. You, you work from the Word of God. Are we both believers? Do we both have the sound, basic doctrines together, and then work from there. Now, (laughs) all of us have been in relationships where that wasn't true. That wasn't true. Sometimes you just have to try and work out a way to getting out of those relationships as graciously and as kindly as you possibly can. And that can take some time and it can be difficult. And that, that would be the subject of an entire message, so we won't go into all of that. But uh, let's just, like I said, make sure our knitting is done with soundly saved believers. Uh, so that it could be sticky at times. And, and so in any situation which in this which should crop up, where you've engaged with someone you know now you shouldn't be engaged with, proceed slowly, carefully, and lovingly. Do it in a manner you would want it done to you. Paul takes this teaching from the Old Testament, by the way, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, and he applies it to the relationship between believers and unbelievers, and we'll, we'll flesh that out in a minute. Deuteronomy 22.10 says, You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Two different animals, two different methods of, of pulling, two different methods of getting along. And one of them, it actually would reduce the efficiency of the plow immeasurably. <laughs> you just don't do it. Don't plow with a donkey and an ox. So Leslie, we question, though, whether Paul is actually talking about a spiritual relationship. He gives five reasons which make it very clear that this is what he had in mind, a spiritual relationship. The first is, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? 
False teachers will generally, if not always, attempt to blend together the doctrinally sound with the doctrinally questionable and the doctrinally unsound. This does not improve doctrine, but rather sows discord and untruth. The gospel is compromised, and people cannot be soundly saved in such a mixture of truth and untruth. Under the guise of tolerance and cooperation, many a ministry has been compromised and destroyed. Many a ministry. It is not loving to water down the truth of Scripture, thus possibly condemning the hearers to a future of eternal damnation or at least a saved nominal Christianity when they could be more than conquerors. They are more than conquerors, and the opportunity to be that conqueror needs to be accompanied by sound doctrine. The word for partnership appears here only in the New Testament. appears only here, excuse me, in the New Testament. It is related to the word used in Luke chapter 5, speaking of Peter's partners in the fishing business. It posits a relationship of commonality, equality, and identical intended direction. I'm going to pull the fish net up on this side of the boat. Well, I'm going to pull it up on this side of the boat. Well, you're going to lose all the fish and you're going to catch the boat. Don't want to do that. There needs to be a commonality, a commonality. No such partnership can proceed properly if the participants are unequally yoked. This first implication is that the righteousness of the believer will be compromised by the lawlessness of the unbeliever. And let's face it, in such a partnership which will likely end in disaster, those who witness the disaster will believe both had an equal part in it. They will believe both had an equal part in the disaster. This will be a blemish on the gospel. That's one of the reasons why we should never be yoked together in ministry with those who are not following sound doctrine. The new nature that comes at salvation is a nature that begins moving towards righteousness as a way of life. Those without that new nature will not intentionally move towards righteousness and will be a drag on the righteous. Indeed, the compromise necessary to work in this way will inevitably drag the righteous down into the mud of lawlessness. Don't be deceived. You can't change them. Only the Holy Spirit can change them. Don't link yourself in a decision that will involve you in new subsequent decisions that are not righteous decisions, that could possibly not be righteous decisions. The second reason that Paul gives is, what fellowship has light with darkness? The word for fellowship is the one we are familiar with, koinonia. It implies intimacy and joint participation. There is no proper way for light and darkness to intermingle. One will dispel the other, and it is most appropriate when light comes in and dispels the darkness. So indeed, the first and most important participation a believer should have with an unbeliever is to give them the gospel. Be on the front lines, positively giving the gospel. John MacArthur said in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, to expect the children of light to work together with the children of darkness is as foolish as to expect both light, as to expect it to be both light and dark in the same place at the same time. When you turn on the flashlight, the darkness flees away. There isn't this little cone of darkness in the middle. They don't mix. Light dispels darkness. Charles Hodge put it this way, explaining the idea of fellowship or communion. He said, Parties are said to be in communion when they are so united that what belongs to the one belongs to the other, 
or when what is true of the one is true of the other. You want to be involved with people so that what is true of them is true of you and that you can unswervingly and unwaveringly say that. Yes, we are like-minded. So, for example, if you work in a trade, which can be, what can be said of your fellow tradesmen can probably be said of you. Are you also an electrician like the other guys in your group? Well, yes, I am, you might answer, but if it is asked this way, are you also a dishonest electrician like the other guys in your group? Well, then, you may have to, I use the word may, but you know better, you would have to disassociate yourself from that. So, it's, uh, it's been numerous times, I know myself, when I've had to, to, to say no to, to doing certain things because I knew that the, the results would be disastrous. Not that I'm perfect, for crying out loud, you guys know me, as imperfect as you can be. But when you're a representative of the gospel and you associate with someone who is a detractor of the gospel, that's what's going to come through. That's what's going to come through. What fellowship... Paul says, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what concord hath light, what fellowship has light with darkness? Any comments about that long-winded section? We're not going to finish the book today. <laughs> See, it's okay, Jess, not to finish. <laughs> well, let's, let's kind of tie it up there. That means we can have relationships with everybody, but the relationship we have with someone is going to be scripturally bound. So, again, if my, uh, if my plumbing has gone south, I'm going to call a plumber. And I'm not going to say, now, do you adhere to the sound doctrines of... <laughs> I would say, do you, know, do you know more than working a plunger? Because that's all I can do. That's what I'm going to say. And I'm going to call a plumber. But if I'm going to be involved with somebody in a manner where what people will look at is say, well, if what is true of him must be true of him. I want it to be able to be so. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's not talking about being aloof and a monk and never involving yourself with anybody. It's just talking about being wise, being careful, but being loving. And so if you are involved in something that the Holy Spirit has indicated you need to be uninvolved with, take your time. If nobody's dying because of it, take your time. Don't, and when I say take your time, I don't mean take five years. I mean, you know, think it through, get good counsel, and move forward as God directs in his script, in his, in his word. And there's plenty of, of grist right in here to help you through it. Let's close in prayer. Father, lest we forget, we were the worst people on, in history, in the universe. Everyone who has ever lived was the worst person in the universe for you to forge a relationship with. But you did. You sent your son. You called those who would be his bride. You made them sheep who would hear his voice and you made them righteous because of the righteousness of Christ only. Let us always remember that, that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. None, zero, zip, nada. There are not enough ways to say it, but we have every righteousness because of Christ and because of his love. Let us be the bearers of that love and that kindness to those who need Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.